By 2015, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are now working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Hi, and welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Guru-Murthy. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts. This is a show about humanitarian crises. We try to understand human suffering and how to reduce it. In this show, we talk with leading humanitarians, foreign policymakers, and innovators about the drivers of conflict and how to save and improve lives of those caught at the center of conflicts. This podcast is our chance to talk to people who can help us do just that. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the humanitarian crisis in Syria. So today on Displace, we've got Stephen Hickey, who is the political coordinator at the UK Mission to the United Nations. He's been there since 2015, and I've known Stephen for over 10 years when we first worked together under David Miliband. Stephen Hickey, I want to take you back to when you were actually deputy uh, ambassador in Syria, in Damascus in 2010. Just tell us a little bit about your time there, because it was right at a critical moment when the war was beginning. Well, Ravi, thanks for having us. Um, yeah, you're right. I was posted to Damascus back in the summer of 2010. Um, it was back then quite a sleepy posting. I remember my predecessor saying to me, um, you're going to love Damascus, but you're going to be bored. And to be honest, um, not very much was happening in Syria in 2010, or at least most diplomats thought not very much was happening. Um, Assad uh, was coming up to the 10-year mark. Syria was a stable society, but it was also one where there was no political freedom, no political space, and the economy was trundling along. But certainly, I think nobody expected in 2010 uh, that there would be the start of a revolution a year after. That all began to change at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, with the revolution and the start of the Arab Spring, really, first in Tunisia. Uh, and then I think the the big defining moment for the Arab Spring came in Egypt and in Cairo, where Syrians were glued to their TV screens, uh, seeing uh, something they couldn't believe, which was the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak. And then uh, it was after that moment, I think, uh, that, that some Syrians began to believe uh, that there could be change in Syria. And your role was kind of really interesting because you weren't there for very long. You had a, a rather rapid exit from Damascus, didn't you? Yeah, I spent um, just uh, just around 18 months there in total. Um, and that was a time when you could travel freely. You were in Raqqa. You yeah. travelled right across the country, didn't you? Yeah. So my, my job, I was the, the number two in the embassy. I was head of the political section. And when the revolution began, began very slowly, lots of small protests around the country, my role as the number two was to get to know the Syrian opposition. So uh, I travelled all over Syria. I went to Homs, Raqqa, Aleppo, um, places which unfortunately we now associate with, with with huge levels of violence. And I was getting to know the people that were protesting. I was trying to understand who they were, uh, what it was they wanted, uh, and you know, if there was anything that, um, that the UK and other Western countries could do to help. So... This is kind of an interesting juncture point with the Arab Spring kind of launching on 2011 and the picture of just Syrians watching their TV is, I think, what we all remember from the Arab Spring, where it was a movement that crossed multiple countries, spread through social media, and 
and ultimately, I think, really hit five countries hard. Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain were those where there was really substantial and significant political tumult and political change. And Syria is one of the countries that has probably launched into uh, the most severe of the crises out of that. And I would love to get your take on what you took away from your understanding of Syrian society, Syrian politics that has shaped the way you think about the arc of the conflict. Right. I mean, I remember when I first arrived in Syria, I actually took um, Arabic lessons for for my first few months there. And um, one of the things that struck me about the geography of Syria at the time was that it's sandwiched between Lebanon on the one hand and Iraq on the other. And both those two countries had had really traumatic, violent recent histories. And I remember uh, asking um, actually one of my Arabic tutors, you know, do you think you could ever see the same levels of violence in Syria as you've seen in Lebanon next door and Iraq? And they said, there's no way it could ever happen in Syria. You know, we are different. Uh, We have a peaceful history. Uh, We have a culture of peaceful coexistence uh, between Christians, between Sunnis and Alawites and Shia. Um, So nobody really expects it to happen. So I guess the interesting question is, why why, why did it really happen? Um, Most people thought it wouldn't do. Um, When protests started all over the Arab world, whereas you'd seen these huge protests of tens of thousands of people um, in Egypt and in Tunisia, in Syria, you were talking maybe 50, 60, uh, maximum 100 people or 200 people for the first few weeks. And most people thought it would probably die out, uh, either because the Syrian regime uh, would be so ruthless at oppressing everybody, or because there just wasn't enough support for revolution. Um, I think a couple of things changed that. I think first, um, you saw, if the regime had been smart, I think it would have just made a few quick concessions, co-opted some of the opposition into the government, and I think it could have died out. But they responded to those small, peaceful protests with massive disproportionate force. Um, They shot people in the streets, they arrested them, tortured them, tortured children. This just led to the protests getting bigger and bigger. And then I think the second factor, uh, which is often overlooked, uh, was the, unfortunately, what became the sectarian nature of the conflict. Um, Three or four months into the conflict that started off very peacefully, as it gradually became more violent because the regime used violence and so some of the protesters had to respond with violence, um, you saw a sectarian element. And the Sunni majority in Syria uh, who uh, had had not benefited uh, from Syria's economic growth as much as uh, the Alawites in Syria, who were more closely aligned with the regime. They had a a strong sense of grievance in parts of the country, particularly in areas around Homs. And so you began to see more of a sectarian dimension to the conflict. And once that touch paper was lit, it was very, very hard to bring the conflict to a peaceful end. And you mentioned the disproportionate response of the regime to those very small protests. Was that born of that fear that fundamentally they were a very small minority uh, regime? And if they allowed uh, democratic protests to grow, fundamentally, they were always going to be pushed out of power if that grew. So they had to sort of suppress it right at the beginning. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's one of the many things that's hard with Syria is to get yourself into the mindset of Bashar al-Assad, uh, because at so many stages throughout the conflict, he's just made the wrong choice. 
I think it goes back to the very nature of the regime, as you say, Ravi. They, um, it's based, it's best thought of as a mafia, as a family mafia based around the Assad regime. Obviously, Bashar al-Assad himself inherited power, uh, and then his close relatives are all in positions of influence in that regime. So it behaves very much as a mafia, and we all know that mafias, you know, they 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 they, they use violence to stay in power. So that was their default method of operating. They'd used violence and they'd used repression uh, for decades to maintain that regime. So that's, that was the first choice for them. That was the first option when they saw any sort of opposition. I think, um, yeah, and they were also paranoid. I think, again, they saw small protests and they were worried. They saw what had happened in Egypt, what was happening in Libya. And I think Assad was paranoid that, that, that he could be next. I think he and his backers, the Iranians uh, and Hezbollah, were also paranoid uh, about a Western role uh, in starting uh, that revolution. Uh, and that was why um, threats were made against Western diplomats in Damascus at the time, uh, including myself. And that was why I later had to leave Damascus uh, and was then made persona non grata, which is where you're formally banned from the country. I want to pull on something that Ravi said and connects to something that I think is really interesting about the way that you characterize the launch, which is the kind of uh, ethnic uh, dynamics um, and dimensions of the Syrian uh, population. So you have a 75% Sunni population within Syria and a minority rule by the Alawites, which is uh, the Assad regime. And so if you were sitting in Assad's throne room, you were thinking that there's no way that you could actually win a long-term war just numerically against 75% of the population. So that incentivizes you to uh, repress very quickly. And it's the dynamics that you saw. It also is a function of the historical use of this strategy in this space. But it sounds like what you're saying is that one of the reasons that this actually didn't work is actually because it united more of a sectarian identity across the Sunnis that maybe was unexpected. So I want to ask you what was what was surprising about the fact that you saw that type of mobilization around that identity? Because I think from the outside, you could have presumed that that was the reason that Assad was making this choice from the first place. Yeah, I think a cu- couple of things. I mean, the first is that it's important to mention that at the start of the revolution, as the protests against Bashar al-Assad grew... Uh, there were protests in support of Assad as well. And although his support uh, was certainly based on support from Alawite communities and from Christian communities, uh, there were some Sunnis who had done well. They were a minority who also supported the regime. So he always had a constituency. It was, in my view, uh, certainly a minority constituency who strongly supported him from the start. The sectarian dimension, I think it had always been there under light. It had been there. Everybody knew that Syria was a, was a mixed country. But I think it was the Sunnis that were disproportionately targeted by the regime uh, when um, there were protests in majority Sunni areas, particularly uh, in, in eastern Ghouta, in areas around Homs uh, and in areas of Aleppo as well. I just want to take you back to that time and, and in fact, a little bit beforehand when we, you and I were working together and we were looking at Syria back in 2008. Uh, You went, I went. And I can remember some of the reporting from Damascus at the time. Uh, John Jenkins, the ambassador, uh, issued a uh, a telegram saying, Syria, rather like Wagner, isn't as bad as it sounds. And he was trying to portray a a very kind of nice picture that we should uh, uh, engage with. And, And critical to the analysis was an analysis of Assad himself. And people would say, look, he trained as an ophthalmologist. He's very Western, uninterested in politics. There is an opening here to engage with him and bring Syria in from the cold. And that was why David Miliband, for instance, travelled out there. You were with him. Um, why is it that we 
misread that situation. And I mean, my perspective on this is very much that we tend to focus on individual personalities, that fundamental attribution error, as uh, psychologists call it, rather than the kind of factors that shape those individuals' behaviour. Yeah, look, I, th- I think looking back, I think many of us got a sad wrong. And I think you're right, Ravi. I think we thought about the fact that he was young, um, that he was married to, to an English wife, that he'd studied in the UK, that he wore smart suits. And we put all these things together and I think thought maybe he's someone we could engage with. And I think um, we have an unfortunate habit in the West of of thinking or hoping that people that just because they've studied in the West, that they'll go back to their countries completely transformed. Um, and that's clearly simplistic. Usually there's more and, reason to hate us, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a simplistic and, and patronising approach. So we got him wrong. I think, look, we were also testing him in those years. Uh, we were seeing, was there any opportunity of engaging him to get him to work with us, particularly when it came to Iraq? And the Americans were very interested in, at that time, uh, before the revolution, in seeing was there scope to do a peace deal between Israel and Syria? Because it, at that moment, it looked as perhaps as the only element of the the regional Israel peace that could be fixed. Um, but, you know, we explored it. And I think we saw, Ravi, when, when we met Bashar al-Assad back in 2008, that um, he was a hardliner, that there was really, he wasn't prepared to give anything, either on the regional picture or in terms of human rights and governing his own country. I want to move us on to the nature of the conflict as it is now. And I wonder whether you could actually tell us the various dimensions of the conflict geographically and uh, in terms of the different players. So how long have you got? We've got about seven years. I mean, one way, I mean, because in some ways you can characterise it as uh, a a conflict that's both a civil war, a a conflict within rebel groups, but also a proxy war. You can also uh, change, think about it from the different regional dimensions. And I think the question, right, like what are the most important ways that we need to be thinking about this conflict and understanding it? So I'll do my best. Um, I mean, it's, it began as a set of peaceful protests, um, largely in, in beginning in Damascus, uh, then in Daraa, and moving to Homs and spreading to Aleppo. And then it quickly became a, a national conflict. Those peaceful protests, they continued, but there, there, became, there was added an ex- sectarian element, as we've discussed. Um, and th- I think then you have to map on the, the foreign powers uh, that began to uh, to grow their, their own role in Syria. You'd always had a big role for Hezbollah and Iran in Syria. Uh, Iran and Hezbollah increased their military involvement to support Assad, who in the early years of the conflict was not doing very well against these rebels who were mm-hmm. growing more and more powerful. Um, then you had, and you still have, um, Gulf states uh, who supported many of the rebel groups. Uh, these groups have waxed, waxed and waned over, over over the last seven years. And then, of course, in 13, 14 and 15, you had the growth of two terrorist groups, two main terrorist groups, uh, ISIS uh, and Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, ISIS since having been largely defeated. So that's one part of it. And then I think the, the the major decisive moment in the conflict, I would say, was in September 2015, when Russia, who had always been supportive of Bashar al-Assad, decided to intervene militarily and decisively in favour of Assad and Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, then, of course, you have the Turks, 
who um, began on the sidelines and took a very anti-Assad position, uh, but became very nervous about the growth in power of Kurdish forces in the north uh, and the northeast. Uh, and they have recently intervened in Afrin in order to push back against the Kurds. And then, of course, you get the Americans, uh, who, uh, and supported by Britain and other members of the glo- global coalition, uh, intervened in 2016-17 against ISIS, uh, mainly around Raqqa and Deir Ezzor in the east of the country. And the Americans continue to have forces uh, in that area, uh, mopping up the, the the threat from Daesh. So I would summarise it now as a as a highly complex conflict uh, with a range of different domestic actors, and the conflict has been clearly exacerbated by the direct involvement of so many foreign powers, particularly Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah. So this is. Uh, gets at a really interesting kind of knot in this conflict. Um, It's just the role of how foreign support in any specific way uh, shapes the arc of a conflict and then actually the humanitarian catastrophes and the lives lost um, in that. And and foreign support, I think, essentially increases the kind of intensity and severity of conflict primarily through three mechanisms. One is it usually increases the duration of the conflict uh, because you have a continuous flow of arms, artillery, resources, fighters to both sides. And so it just kind of props up uh, sides that may have lost without their support. The second is that it makes it more challenging to actually find a negotiating space and a political settlement because if you just had the internal groups, Assad versus the opposition, maybe there's more space. But once you bring on Iran, the Turks, the Americans, Russia, you just have more players around the table. And finding the area of commonality that gets you to a settlement is much, much smaller. And third, and I think this has particular importance for the humanitarian implications, is that the groups that are operating rely less on local populations than they would have otherwise. So opposition groups who need to recruit individuals, who need to potentially uh, support local populations to make sure that they are welcome and can actually operate, no longer have to do so because they're actually receiving the support from outside. And once that tie is broken, what you tend to see is a much more violent conflict emerge where you don't actually have rebel groups who have to engage in any form of accountability or governance. And I think that this gets at just the challenging ways that foreign foreign influence shapes this. And I'm just curious about how you think about which mechanisms are relevant um, and in shaping kind of the domestic uh, affairs of how a conflict evolves when you're thinking about foreign policy interventions? So I think you're completely right that foreign intervention has, has, been, has been one of the major things that has fueled this conflict. I would say together with um, the, the damaging sectarian dimension and the, the scale and the nature of the force used by the Assad regime. Those three things together um, have been disastrous for Syria. Um, I think the other thing that I reflect on is I remember, Ravi, when, when you and I were um, working for the British Foreign Secretary David Miliband 10 years ago, um, the Americans always had a grip uh, and a plan for the Middle East. Now, it wasn't always a plan that, that everybody agreed with, but you go to any summit, you go to any conference, Condi Rice would be there, she'd be gathering people and she'd have a way forward, she'd have a plan. I think one of the things that has shaped the Syrian conflict over the last um, uh, seven seven years has been uh, the deliberate by- decision uh, by the Obama administration um, to withdraw to an extent from the Middle East. 
Um, and that did leave the arena more open for other foreign powers uh, to play a decisive role. Uh, in particular, so you, so you think that Iran, the Russians, and Russia. I was going to say, you think that in September 2015, there was a calculation by Russia, by by Turkey, uh, by Hezbollah, etc., that this was a moment which they could seize, and that the, that the playing field was left open uh, for them. Yeah, I think that's right. I think another decisive moment, in addition to 2015, which plays into that, had been the the so-called uh, Obama red line from 2013. Uh, where um, he, he had certainly implied that uh, the US would use military force if chemical weapons were used. We all know they were used in eastern Ghouta, tragically, as they have been again in uh, in recent weeks, and there was no there was no military follow-up. So I think it was Putin's calculation after that moment, and I think it was Iran's calculation that, that America wouldn't intervene, and I think that did give Iran and Russia the confidence to play a more assertive role. And, and, and it was the Russian, Iranian, and Hezbollah intervention that really strengthened Assad. And I think, you know, if it hadn't been for that, I think Syria would look very different different today. And I think um, the whole ISIS al-Nusra picture would have played out very differently as well. Over the past seven years, an estimated 500,000 people have died. These numbers are really hard to verify. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, I think, stopped counting two or three years ago because it's just so hard to gain access. But estimates, are, which are likely conservative, place at about half a million, which is which is just huge. To put that in comparison, in Somalia during the war, about 50,000 people died. In Iraq, it's an estimated 250,000 civilians to maybe 450,000. The median a number of deaths in civil wars over the past uh, many years is actually just about 10,000. So that's between 1945 and 2000. So this just in terms of deaths is mind-boggling. Um, when you then think about the displacement it's caused, and this is where I actually think it gets into the interesting politics of it, it's been even more massive. So uh, 5 million um, individuals have been been displaced outside the borders of uh, Syria. There's 5 million refugees. Um, 60% of Syria's population has actually been displaced. Um, and so many millions are in place externally. And it's wild to think about what the implications are, not only for the human lives of those people, but for what is done to neighboring countries. So right now we're questioning the stability of places like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. Massive waves of refugees have gone into Europe, um, kind of, you know, unraveling the very seams of some of those institutions. And so when I take a step back and think about the counter argument around foreign intervention to how it could have gone differently if we hadn't been, I think you can also take a look at this from our side and say, actually, we didn't really intervene in the West in a decisive way. And what's happened is not only this massive amount of death and destruction, but it's actually then started to, you know, tear at the very seams of institutions in Europe. C completely. I think um, I completely agree with your point that, um, well, look, we've seen in, in recent decades um, many of the, the problems and the costs of Western intervention. But I would argue in Syria in the last seven years, we've seen very clearly that the, the costs of non-intervention and non-intervention is a choice. Now, having said that, um, there were never any easy, brilliant plans for Syria. 
Um, but I think there are a number of things, um, looking back on it and with the, ba- with the benefit of hindsight, um, we could have done differently uh, to have prevented, first and foremost, the huge suffering of the Syrian people. Uh, second, the, the growth of terrorism in Syria and in the region. And then I think third, the impact that the, that the crisis has had on neighbouring countries and on Europe. And it's, it's, it's been, as you know, massively politically significant in Europe. We know you like to stay up to date on all the latest news. It's why you're listening to this podcast. Well, now you can stream our podcast and several others like it on Spotify. I listen to my music on Spotify, but I'd not listened to a podcast until just now. And it's really easy. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. You can also stream on your smart speaker. Start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news on Spotify. So, Stephen, I want to turn to the chemical weapon attack that's just happened. Can you just explain uh, in your in your eyes what has actually gone gone on? So, we don't know the full picture. Uh, we don't have people on the ground. But I think you have to rewind a bit. Um, since the beginning of this conflict, the Assad regime has been using chemical weapons. And we know that they conducted a major attack in 2013 in eastern Ghouta, in 2017 in Khan Sheikhoun just over a year ago. And we've all seen the horrific videos and photos uh, of the attack in Douma. Um, so the attacks I mentioned were the big ones that caught the headlines. But in between, um, you know, we assess there have been well over 60 reported attacks uh, of using chemical weapons just simply in the last year. So this has been an ongoing pattern of behaviour, primarily by the Assad regime, uh, but there's also evidence that ISIS um, used chemical weapons uh, as well. Um, I mean, this has been a disaster. It's a disaster for Syria and um, for the victims in Eastern Ghouta and in Idlib uh, and Aleppo and in Homs all around the country. It's also eaten away at um, the the most important fabric of of the multilateral system, uh, of the United Nations, of the uh, regime for countering weapons of mass destruction, and in particular at the Chemical Weapons Convention. Uh, We've seen the normalisation of the use of chemical weapons as a weapon of war over the last seven years, and nothing uh, has been done uh, to stop it. And and just, uh, I want to get into two things. One, your level of certainty that, that chemical weapons were used most recently... And secondly, the actual effect that that's happened, that's had on the conflict, because you could argue from a from Assad's perspective, it's actually been quite successful. You've seen Jaish uh, al-Islam um, consenting to a deal. The Russians say that uh, 8,000 fighters and 40,000 civilians are being evacuated um, and that the group Jaish al-Islam have agreed to release hundreds of civilian captives. So uh, what's interesting about this is that it's been incredibly effective in swiftly shifting the behaviour of uh, an opponent. Yeah, it has been. And and as I said, it's been something. It's been a, a weapon that's been used consistently by Assad, and he has a pattern of using it um, when he is seeking to clear an area. And unfortunately, 
uh, it can it has been used as a as a means of, um, of 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 moving people out of an area that's been very hard to take through other means. So yeah, it's been a tactic he's used repeatedly. Um, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that a chemical attack uh, took place in Douma. I think the photos, the video footage is is overwhelming, and if you put that together with the pattern of behaviour by Assad throughout this conflict, I think you can only reach one conclusion. So the chemical attacks that we've seen in Duma are absolutely horrendous. Um, and I think an estimated 45 people have died as of most recent count. And But it, I want to push on what Ravi said on how to think about these. Because on one hand, what you're saying is chemical weapons should never be used. It's a uh, crime in international humanitarian law. Um, it has become a norm in the international system that we don't use this. We're going to get into kind of the strategic responses of the United States. But we have said that this is a red line. But... Then we take a step back. You actually see that chemical weapons, compared to all of the other weapons, kill a very small number of people. And so if you take Duma again, right, uh, Jesh al-Islam that Ravi's talking about is the rebel group that's holding this area, that's been engaging in conflict with the regime for many months. There's essentially a stalemate. Many people are dying because of the use of conventional weapons. And literally a day after this chemical weapon attack happens, they come, they are at the negotiating table and they reach a deal that stops this conflict. And so on one hand, yes, chemical weapons have been used and they're absolutely horrendous and against norms. On the other hand, when you then think about the 500,000 deaths that are disproportionately caused by other means, how do you how do you think about this? How should we think about weighing um, the number of deaths here versus these international norms? So I, I've been quite struck um, listening to Syrian voices in, in, in recent days. I mean, they make a very good point that the West at the moment focuses on chemical weapons, uh, but far more Syrians have died through other means, um, through mm-hmm. aerial bombardment using barrel bombs, white phosphorus. And they make the point that the West um, should be just as outraged about the killing of, uh, of civilians by those means uh, as as uh, through attacks by chemical weapons. And I think What's they, your response to that? I, I think it's a good, it's a good it's a good point, and I think um, you know we should be we should and we are trying to do more to to save Syrian lives and and chemical weapons have a have a unique place because they are such a horrific weapon of war that until uh, recently the whole world had come together uh, and had agreed should never be used again. Um, but, but but what's the fundamental rationale? for uh, valuing chemical weapons deaths much more highly than other forms of of killing i think i don't i don't think anyone would say that um i think any the death of any civilian uh is is a tragedy and one death is 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 one death too many um i do think um that i understand though the importance of maintaining a ban on chemical weapons simply because of the horrific nature of the weapon and 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 its ability to ability to be scaled up and to cause horrendous suffering. I mean, my reflection on this is not that our reaction to the chemical weapons is too great. It's just it shows the under yeah. uh, well, lack of reaction to the incredible scale of killing that's happened in the, in the crisis so far. I think I think I think that's right, and I think um, Syria has has become over the seven years the most horrendous conflict. And I think it began, you know, it began slowly, and it began at a time when our focus was elsewhere. We were focused on Egypt, we were focused on Libya for the for the most of most 2011, uh, and we were too slow to react to the horrendous suffering that was happening. You can also think about this the other way, though, right? We are only seeing limited use of chemical weapons um, from one perspective uh, compared to conventional weapons in the Syrian conflict and elsewhere. So indeed, we're seeing many attacks. But as we've noted, the 
uh, large number of casualties are actually coming from barrel bombs and more conventional means. In a world in which there wasn't that norm, you'd imagine actually that there'd be much more chemical warfare and that that could unleash, you know, just massive amounts of more terror, both in terms of deaths, but also then in terms of actually having regimes who are dictatorial have essentially kind of a, a tool of war, a weapon of war that really gives them such a comparative advantage over any population that it would allow them to kind of just like rule much more autocratically. So uh, you can see that you can see the, the slope of thinking around chemical weapons, which yeah. is even once these become a little more normalized, even if they're used more so now that you can actually really get to a different political equilibrium in countries. So that takes us, I think, to uh, the the string that you had kind of pulled on before, which is this is not the first time we're seeing this. And we saw it in 2013. And Obama basically said there's a red line when he was thinking about how the conflict was evolving there. We do not want to see the use of chemical weapons. And then we saw the use of chemical weapons. Obama then came out and said, I suggest and we should take military action in Syria. He then, though, punted to Congress and looked for their authorization. Um which was denied. And we then ended up moving towards uh, a resolution in which, with alongside Russia, we said, we're going to get rid of your stockpiles altogether. Um, and that's going to be the solution. And this kind of made everybody feel a little bit better. And then a few years later, and we'll get into this, you see chemical weapons being used again. So how should we think about negotiations and negotiated settlements over not using chemical weapons and supposedly destroying them. If you look at this case and you see that absolutely was ineffective. Well, you're right. I mean, I think everybody thought, everybody hoped that the deal that was done between the Americans and the Russians uh, back in 2013 would work and that the Russians would fulfill the commitment they made to ensure that all of Assad's stocks of chemical weapons were removed and that Assad would never use chemical weapons again. And the Russians and the Americans together drafted several Security Council resolutions to that end. They voted for them. And basically what's happened is that the Russians have not honoured their side of the deal. And Assad clearly hasn't honoured his side of the deal. And we have tried, the West has tried through the UN Security Council to put pressure on Assad, to hold him to account. And every single time the Russians have stepped in to protect Assad. They've used their veto 12 times, six times alone on the chemical weapons file uh, in the Security Council. And I think, you know, it shows you the limits of diplomacy through the UN Security Council. And I think it also shows you uh, basically that, unfortunately, at the moment, Russia cannot be trusted uh, as a partner to uphold the Chemical Weapons Convention and to protect civilians in Syria. So we get to 2017, just to kind of keep playing out this arc and illustrating it. And chemical weapons are used again. And now Trump is the president. And he is personally horrified, right? He comes out and on TV, he says, beautiful little babies have died. We're going to respond. And part of this is a function of, you know, wanting, looking back and seeing that Obama didn't actually enforce a red line and he wanted to be a stronger player. Um, And part of this was, you know, he had the he had the right response. This is how we should feel. Like we should all agree with Trump at how heinous this was and think that it deserves a reaction. And so he orders fifty nine Tomahawk cruise missiles to destroy the air base um, from which we had determined the um, chemicals had come. 
And this didn't really do anything. This did like nothing. Uh, that thing really interests me in the current situation because the whole point of that was a, a punitive action that will deter future use of chemical weapons. And it's proved not to work. And that means you have to think about what is the response now. And it feels like there are different potential ways to do this. One is another slap on the wrists, uh, another set of airstrikes. Another version is to uh, back rebels and try to increase the costs of war and potentially shift the balance of power in the conflict. It feels very, very late to do that, given where we are. And then the third is is almost overwhelming force and a very decisive uh, military action that will actually turn the tables in the war. And I'm just interested in how do you think about those different three options and how do you go about appraising uh, the pros and cons of them? So I think you, I think every every country, every war is different. And I think as a as a diplomat uh, and as policymakers, you always look at the range of options. And as diplomats, you exhaust uh, in, the, in the early stages all the diplomatic tools you have: bilateral diplomacy, the UN Security Council, the European Union, sanctions. And we've 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 tried all of these things um, ad nauseum for the last seven years. And as I said, in the Security Council, we've been blocked 12 times. Um, and so I think many of us and the British government supported the, the strikes that President Trump carried out last year. I mean, it's difficult perhaps to say that it had no effect whatsoever. Um, we, we, we haven't seen uh, since then a, a purely sarin yeah. uh, attack in, in the last It's 12. been chlorine attacks that we've it's seen. Been, it's been chlorine attacks. So um, shifting the use but, of but the it, actual but chemicals. It, but it clearly hasn't been sufficient. It hasn't, it hasn't stopped Assad from using chemical weapons. Um, so, um, look, you, you asked about backing rebel forces. Um, many, many, many Western governments have um, supported moderate rebel forces uh, and have supported civil society in, in areas that have been liberated from the Assad regime. I think, I think now um, it's clear that a lot of those strategies haven't worked. And uh, that's why... Um, uh, and you'll have seen President Trump's um, Twitter feed, um, we are now looking at a more forceful military response in the coming days. But all the options seem to, to, to lead to cul-de-sacs because another repeat of the military action that Trump ordered last time uh, would just lead to, an, you know, it clearly didn't deter them enough. Um, backing rebels is just like to prolong the war and the suffering and the displacement even more. But if you go even further and have a more decisive military action, then you really do risk escalation and even bigger conflict with Iran and with Russia. Look, I agree, and there are no, no, no easy answers. I think you do have to show the Assad regime and Russia and Iran that there are clear costs to using chemical weapons. And I think we're going to see that. I think you're, you're getting to the question of how do you bring, how do you bring all this to an end? Um, Assad and Russia very clearly pursuing a military strategy at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, the West talks a lot about political strategy, but we all know there's been no political process um, that's made any progress for, for, for the last seven years. I think Assad will keep pursuing a military strategy until he meets resistance. And at that point, uh, Russia and Assad may come to the negotiating table. And if the end game is obviously some sort of political settlement uh, underpinned by some military force that brings them to the negotiating table. To what extent is it feasible from a, from a US, UK, uh, French side to see a political settlement with Assad still in, still in place? And on the counter side, it seems inconceivable that Russia uh, or Iran would concede uh, to a, a non-Assad ruled uh, Syria. So I just don't really see how the political settlement gets over that hurdle. 
I, I think that's the fundamental sticking point. And you're right, the, the Russians and the Iranians want to keep Assad. And they certainly want to keep the regime. And for the opposition, Assad has become such a, a symbol, uh, such a poisonous figure, that it's very hard to see the opposition and, and many ordinary Syrians accepting him as their president. Um, the, in theory, the sweet spot is that you have some transition process uh, whereby uh, Assad, over a period of time, would hand over power to somebody else. I think there's also been a bit of a coming together in recent years around the idea that the Syrian state institutions need to be preserved. Uh, and we have learned lessons from Iraq and from Libya on the need to maintain the Syrian state. But it, I agree with you, Ravi, and it's, it's, it's difficult to see any sort of political solution um, in, in, in the coming months, given how far apart the two sides are. We, you also bring this back to kind of just the human situation, the humanitarian parts of this too. When you think about the 5.6 million refugees that have left Syria and are now on other shores, those vast, vast majority are from areas that were bombed by the Assad regime. They're from the Sunni areas, whether they, they were not necessarily active opposition, but they're unlikely to necessarily go back with an Assad regime. And so you think about from neighboring countries' perspectives, European perspectives of what the implication of that is, it's that refugees are going to be very unlikely to repatriate. And so I think one Do you of really the- think that's true? I mean, I, I think it's perfectly possible that if there is- um, uh, an Assad regime that does have some sort of power sharing, if that starts to uh, bring a certain degree of order, I, I don't see it being impossible that you, you get a return. Here's one of the ways I think it plays out and be keen to get your thoughts. Assad comes in, he's in a situation in which he's the victor and he's like, this is what happens. I think most of those people do not go home. I think they then remain on other shores. I think we then have to think about what the other durable solutions for these refugees are. And that's just a massive undertaking. In a world in which you actually get to some uh, political sharing agreement, I think there is going to be much more apprehension for a quick repatriation. Right? I think people are... If I, if because I was, it's unstable it's, in that situation. It's unstable. It's unclear what's going to happen. There's a high probability that we will kind of uh, recede back into war. It's unclear whether there's actually going to be retaliation. Is the power sharing agreement fundamentally sufficient such that you're actually not going to see more violence against them if they return? I think they, I think it extends the duration of their lives being displaced, which is also huge. I mean, and, and I think those are the two worlds that you have to bring into the calculus here. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in theory, power sharing sounds good. Uh, in in practice, I think it's going to be a, a, a struggle. I remember back in 2011, uh, Bashar al-Assad's cousin, Rami Makhlouf, saying very clearly that they would fight to the bitter end uh, to stay in power. And we spoke a bit about the mindset of the Assad regime at, at the start of our conversation and I, you know, I think it's going to be. It's difficult to envisage how this regime could really open up and share power. The second and, point, and, it's, and, it, and that's a totally rational thing to do. If you, particularly if you're a minority yeah. uh, uh, regime, why include people when you could have a risk of a coup? Um, you might as well just face them down and and deal with the civil war when yeah. you've got to actually control of the state apparatus. But this also, sorry, this also gets at the bind of the situation, which is if you are the Assad regime or the Alawite population. And you're gonna put yourself in their shoes. Like they think, if they lose, they're gonna be victims of the same type of violence, right? And so you've either got a situation in which you maybe have some power sharing agreement, and refugees or others are uncertain about what's gonna to happen to them. 
but so will the Alawites. And this is yeah. this is why there's a bind. This is why you get a, a motivation and logic to fight to the end. I, I mean, I should have said at the beginning, I think we all need to be careful about generalizing too much about Absolutely. Alawites and Absolutely. Sunnis and Christians. Mm. I mean, there are there are Alawites in favor of the regime, against the regime, and there are, same with Sunnis. Um, but I agree with your central point that there's a huge amount of fear on both sides uh, among the minority communities in Syria about what would happen uh, if the regime fell and you had all these Islamist, jihadi mm. groups coming into Damascus uh, and vice versa amongst uh, refugees, many of them who have fed, fled because they are fearful of their lives. So... I think this is this is the problem. Any political solution where um, Assad remains in power and his intelligence agencies uh, continue to have to continue to behave in the way they have been behaving is unlikely to be sustainable and durable um, because of the because of the fear uh, and because of the I think the because of the bloodshed that's gone on between both sides in the last seven years. So without without a transition, without some form of political change, it's really hard to see a durable political solution. It gets it. I mean. Picking up on one of the things that you said right when we were starting off um, and thinking about the arc of the conflict, there was a moment where it was thought that Assad would lose. Um, the military dynamics, the population dynamics were such that, you know, we were planning for what it would look like in a post-Assad world and doing some planning there. And, and just at that point, Stephen, why was there not a political vision um, and, and why was there not more conscious efforts to create a new settlement? So I think there's two points there. I think first, I think in the West, I think not just in Syria, but also in Egypt, um, where I was posted after Syria, uh, we underestimated the ability of these regimes and these institutions to preserve power. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and also the, the sort of strength of the power networks that supported them. In terms of why wasn't there a plan? I mean, it's a good question. I think we we didn't we weren't in control. I mean, again, one of the lessons from the Arab Spring is the limits of Western influence uh, in these countries. Um, we had very few levers that we could pull. Now we weren't in control, um, and and therefore it was hard for us to come up with a plan. If you have a plan, you know you you, you, you exert some control over the factors that determine the outcomes. But we've seen how Russia has been incredibly uh, decisive and influential in the in the in the Middle East right now when it wasn't 10 years ago. Exactly. When we were working together 10 years ago, nobody really talked about Russian influence in the Middle East. I think the Russians, I think, A, they saw an opportunity and they saw a vacuum uh, the West had, had withdrawn. Uh, and B, they had a very clear objective. They knew what they wanted, which was Assad to stay in power and the regime to stay in power and the West to lose. And C, and this is maybe the crucial point, they were willing to put the resource behind it. And uh, and we just were not willing to do that, uh, neither diplomatically nor nor militarily. And the Russians were. And I think that's why they're in the strong position. And that's why we're in a very weak position right now. So every day you often sit in the Security Council uh, debating with the Russians. When you when you know that they put the kind of effort and resources they've they've put in and they're now much more powerful than ever. What kind of strategies do you use to try to influence uh, the situation in the Security Council? And, and and how much effect do you think that has on the whole situation or could have in the next uh, in the next few months? Do, do the Russians look around the room and basically say, nobody's willing to do anything that has any teeth, and so none of this really matters? Look, I mean, the, the Security Council is its own bubble. And um, I think um, 
the, the Russians have a very different outlook on the world to us. I think they're they're riding high in parts of the Middle East at the moment. I think we mustn't forget that domestically, um, you know, their economy is doing badly. Uh, that their economy is the size of Belgium and the Netherlands put together, smaller than Canada's. Uh, they're not the huge global power they were 50 years ago. Look, in the Security Council, one of the things we try to do is to it's a shine a spotlight on what's happening, uh, to hold them to account for what they're doing, and also to build support among other countries, and uh, and that's that's an ongoing struggle every day to uh, continue to work with our allies, but also other states from other parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, Asia, and to convince them to work with us and our vision of a multilateral system based around rules. Um, versus the the, the Russian narrative, uh, which pays le- much less attention to human rights or humanitarian law, and is focused instead on ensuring the power of states uh, and has a has an overfocus on counterterrorism. So there are two very different versions visions of how the world should be running right now, uh, and we're battling it out every day in the council in, in favour of ours and trying to win support for it. So coming back to where you had interjected before, Ravi, around what I was saying about the observation that there was a moment in which we thought that the opposition was going to win and that we would see Assad lose. That was a moment in which the power balance had really shifted one way. And we have now seen it shift the other way. And we are seven years in. Mm. To take a step back and think about civil conflict more broadly... If you look between 1945 and 1999, what the data says is that the average civil war lasts 17 years. And so there's a sense that maybe we're at a turning point and Russia and Assad are applying enough pressure that we're going to get to a military uh, victory shortly. But when you look at the trends, this could last another 10 years and then we'd only be at the average duration of a war, right? And so it it makes me just wonder about how much we're kind of in this small micro level moment where we're trying to think about minimal pivots versus just a much longer story. And how do you how do you think about what the venues here are and where we go? I agree. I think the conflict could run for, for, for a much longer period of time. I think we could be heading for a scenario where the Assad regime takes back um, most of the, the rest of the country. Um, the big question is what's going to happen in Idlib, uh, where you've got 2 million people uh, under various different opposition groups. I think that could well be the next target for Assad. Um, but the trajectory at the moment is that he'll continue to take territory. Um, then he, I, I'd be surprised if you have, without a political solution, I think even if he controls more territory, I think you'll continue to see terrorism. You'll continue to see attacks in urban centres and, and you won't have stability. But I think the defining factor will be uh, the level of foreign engagement uh, on, e- on either side. And when you think about it from the perspective of reducing human suffering... I think it can leave you quite torn because you could argue that you know a few months ago uh, it looked like Assad was going to to win, uh, his control was spreading. With this chemical weapons attack, this could be the moment when the war actually starts to perpetuate even further because you get more foreign involvement. Um, and so, from a sort of angle, if you were just thinking about how to reduce human suffering, you might come to the kind of very difficult conclusion that doing less is better and an all-out a sad military victory is the least worst option. I think the problem with that is that uh, in order to secure victory, uh, Assad has used the most appalling means to get there. As if we sat back and did nothing and just sort of said, right, you know, Assad, carry on, um, 
the type of tactics we've seen in Ghouta and in Aleppo, where we've seen the use of chemical weapons, we've seen the use of uh, bunker-busting bombs and barrel bombs, we've seen thousands of men, women and very young children be murdered, would continue on a massive scale in Idlib. So I don't think that just to sort of sit back and let Assad win would, would, would involve witnessing, you know, massive human suffering. Um, I think the solution, the question is, you know, what, what's the alternative? Mm. I think we uh, we have to use all the means at our disposal to ensure that Idlib, that there, there is, we do not see massive aerial bombardment of Idlib. And we spoke earlier about the huge um, civilian casualties. I mean, the vast majority of c- civilians in, the, in this conflict have been killed by the Assad regime and its backers. And a huge percentage of those deaths have come because of the use of air power. So I think we have to make sure... Um, uh, Yeah, and you can achieve that in many many different ways. But nobody wants to see Assad's warplanes backed with Russian warplanes flying over Idlib uh, and bombing the two million civilians that are are taking refuge there. I mean, this conversation just parallels the conversation we were having on chemical weapons, which is, sure, there's an argument to actually reduce suffering. You just let heinous, appalling behavior happen. But what are the, like, what are the consequences of that, both within this conflict in Syria and then longer term? And from a humanitarian perspective, I think one of the crucial things to reduce suffering in the long game is you have to hold the line. Like you can't accept this behavior because otherwise you end up in a situation in which, you know, radical destruction and death and violations of laws of war become the optimal and norm strategy. Yeah, there's, there's a wider point here about international humanitarian law and the the set of global norms that we've established since the Second World War. And we, these are being torn apart in Syria. And we can't just sit back and say, that's OK. You know, Even if, though, that. further intervention, military action by the US and the UK just perpetuates the problem and, and, and doesn't actually lead to an end game. So, I mean, fine if there was a coherent strategy uh, and a political uh, settlement that you could see. But if we're just going to basically uh, perpetuate things is it really the right thing to do just for the sake of preserving some norm? Look, I think you have to show the Assad regime uh, that he cannot continue to use chemical weapons against his own people, that there has to be a price to pay. And I think we have to take measures to reduce the capability of of his air force uh, to continue to drop uh, chemical weapons on civilian areas. So that in itself is a is something we have to address. I think nobody is pretending that there is a that 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 in itself is a comprehensive solution to the Syria conflict, which goes which goes much much broader. But I also think that there are other regimes and there are other governments around the world that are looking at Syria and that are looking at the West response to Syria, and and will draw conclusions from it. And I think if they see that Assad can use the most barbaric weapons against his own people in repressing them and get away with it, you know, they will draw the appropriate conclusions. So it's important not just for Syria but for the wider world. Okay, this was officially the saddest podcast taping that we have ever done. (laughs) On just a last note, when you look at the situation either within Syria or globally, are are there any things that you remain optimistic about and are there is there anything that people can do? This podcast is going to get sadder because you're not going to be able to come up with anything. Are you? <laughs> well, look, I think the, the 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 IRC and other charities and NGOs are doing fantastic work with um, with refugees um, and displaced people, obviously outside, inside Syria. So there's a huge amount we can do to support those charities. Um, is there anything that gives me optimism? I think 
uh, you know, I, I've been struck in the Security Council that there is a growing uh, chorus of states and also people around the world, civil society, who are now saying enough is enough, uh, who are now saying that well, we cannot allow the Assad regime uh, backed by Russia to continue using chemical weapons and such barbaric tactics. So that gives me hope uh, that we might, be able, we, might be, we might start to see a, a, a more constructive international approach. Stephen Icke, thank you very much. Uh, it's been great having you on the programme. The IRC, as you said, is in Syria at the moment. We've got 750 staff there and many other organisations are doing life-saving work. If you do want to donate, please do. And thank you very much for listening. I'd like to thank a few people from the International Rescue Committee who made all this possible. Catherine Long, Ben Moskovitz and Alex Bandea. And at Vox Media, our team is senior producer Golda Arthur, associate producer Jelani Carter and Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer of audio is Nishat Kerwa. We would love to hear what you think about this show, who you'd like to see on it or anything you were thinking. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org. And on Twitter, I am at Grant M. Gordon and Ravi is at R. Gurumurthy. Review us too. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>